Glory to Jesus Christ. Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish presents Light of the East, a program revealing how the Eastern Catholic Churches have nourished the Roman Catholic Churches and today's world in profound ways through their histories, traditions, mysteries, and spirituality. Hello, I am Father Thomas J. Loya, pastor of Annunciation of the Mother of God Byzantine Catholic Church in Homer Glen, Illinois. And this is a story of the Eastern Churches, an inspiring story of faith, courage, intrigue, mystery, spirituality, dissension, and reconciliation. But most of all, this is an expression of a great experience of faith through our unique divine liturgy. Join with me now as we look toward the light of the East. Light of the East is also supported by Eastern Christian Publications, where you can find the prayers of the Catholic Byzantine Daily Office at ecpubs.com and by easternchristianmedia.com, a broadband network for you to learn more about the Eastern Catholic Churches. That's easternchristianpublications.com. Christ is risen. Indeed, he is risen. Welcome to Light of the East. I'm Father Thomas Lawyer, your host. On this Sunday of the ointment-bearing women, and we also celebrate Joseph and Nicodemus. Now, it's really interesting, and I think very providential, that we're looking at this theme here on the second Sunday after Pascha, especially in light of the fact that John Paul II was canonized as a saint. Because one of the hallmarks of John Paul II and why he deserves to be called a saint was his teachings on the human person, in particular what is known as his theology of the body. And the themes and the accounts, the theology, the liturgical text, especially Eastern churches at this time, are very, very much just that, the theology of the body. In other words, we see in Christ's resurrection and what happened afterwards, especially today, we're going to look at men and women. We find the great why behind our being man and woman. We find that in the historical events of Christ's resurrection, but also in the way the liturgical texts meditate on that, that draws into a meditation. So we're going to look at certain themes today, certain points that have to do with women and of men. And these themes all have to do with strength, the strength, the virtues of each. And speaking of that, and also because, once again, we're past our 500 mark of our radio programs here at Light of the East, and we owe so much to a certain individual named Charles Cook of the Saginaw, Michigan area. Charles is asking us all to step up and to show our own strength with something very special, very important, very urgent, that does have a lot to do with the theology of the body, with man, with woman, and that is to help protest the HHS mandate. Charles asked me to ask all of you to consider coming to something that he is a part of. It's a stand-up against the most grave attack on religious freedom in United States history, the HHS decree that nearly all Catholic and other Christian hospitals, colleges, and businesses provide abortion-causing drugs to their employees and students. We must stop the use of insurance and taxpayer dollars to fund this outrageous attack against our religious liberty. Stand up for freedom of religion on Saturday, May 17th, 
12 noon at the Saginaw County Courthouse. Now, that's Saginaw, Michigan, especially for our friends listening on Ave Maria Radio and also Living Bread Radio. We appreciate all the kindness you have shown towards us here at Light of the East. I know many of you are very good fans of ours here, and especially, of course, we owe so much to Charles Cook, and that's why we're trying to help Charles out here at Light of the East. Charles is helping to organize this very, very important event. So once again, that's at 111, that's 111 South Michigan at Court Street to defend the very soul of our nation. The guest speaker is going to be Monica Miller, Ph.D., author and founder of Citizens for a Pro-Life Society, and will be attending this peaceful prayer rally sponsored by the Immaculate Heart of Mary Chapter, Catholics United for the Faith. For additional information, call 989-790-4873. Again, for additional information, call 989-790-4873. Join them in standing up for religious freedom Saturday, May 17th, 12 noon at the Saginaw County Courthouse. Again, that's in Saginaw, Michigan, in our Friend Charles Cook is helping to organize this. So, Charles, we thank you for stepping up like Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, who, as the scriptures say, came at night to request the body of Jesus Christ. Now, in doing that, they were rather courageous. And so, once again, Charles and the people there from Immaculate Heart of Mary chapter, Catholics United for the Faith, are asking you to be like Joseph and Nicodemus and step up to defend the body of Christ, to defend the theology of the body by speaking against this HHS mandate, this decree. Now, as we look at Joseph and the women at the tomb, in other words, the, we call them the ointment bearer, the myrrh-bearing women, we see certain characteristics that I mentioned before have a lot to do with their strength and their valor, and also the meaning of what it is to be man and woman. There's a couple other things, too, that have to do with John Paul II's theology of the body in these texts as well. One of those I'm going to point to is this, and this is the liturgical text, the words that we pray during this weekend of the murmuring women, and one of them is this, stripping me of the ancient garment that had been woven from me by the power of iniquity, you have clothed me, O Lord, in the garment of immortality. I'll read that again, stripping me of the ancient garment, ancient garment, that had been woven from me by the power of iniquity, You have clothed me, O Lord, in the garment of immortality. Now, throughout the liturgical text in the Eastern churches during this past few weeks, this idea of a garment keeps coming up, skin and garment. And also, we speak of a garment that is worn during this time of baptism. You know, of course, the Easter Vigil is the great time of baptism. And the people who are baptized, the candidates for baptism, wear a baptismal gown. In other words, they actually put on a white, beautiful, pure robe, which is reminiscent also of a wedding garment. They put it on because they're becoming people of light, children of light, of illumination. So we sing also words from St. Paul's letters, all you have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is this idea of putting on a different kind of skin, a different kind of garment, a different kind of appearance. You know, if somebody went running through the room and you didn't know who they are, you did not see too many details. One of the first things you would notice is, well, I know who it was, but somebody ran through or they were wearing red or they were wearing blue. Well, usually you'd see the color. You'd see something on the outside of them and usually having to do with a color. And that's the first thing you identify. Similar, say, for instance, in an accident. Oh, the blue car hit the green car. You may not know what those cars are exactly, but you would see the color first. You would see the outer garment. Well, it's the same thing with us as Christians, especially with baptism. Our outer garment 
In other words, what people see first is supposed to be radiant, illumined, pure, holy. That's what it means to be a Christian. So in baptism, what we do is we put that garment on the person being baptized. But this use of garment, you notice, is in the liturgical text that we just read. I'm going to read it again. Stripping me of the ancient garment. Now, what was that ancient garment? Once again, this word garment is significant. It means how we appeared originally, Adam and Eve. We appeared with a body that was more pure, perhaps more spiritualized than we know of a body today since after original sin. Adam and Eve had a body like ours, but it was somehow more special, more like the body that, not exactly, but closer probably to the body that Christ would have after he rose from the dead. So there's a sense of a different kind of appearance that we had, the ancient garment. And then it says, stripping of the ancient garment, which had been woven from me. But then what happened was Adam and Eve sinned, and they took on another kind of garment. In other words, another kind of what the father of the church would say, a garment of skin. In other words, their appearance as we know it was a little closer to ours as we know it. In other words, a little more, I'll use the term, coarse, not quite so pure and spiritualized. So there's an original garment, then there's also this later garment after sin, which the liturgical text referred to as the garment that was woven for me by the power of iniquity. But you have clothed me, Lord, in the garment of immortality. So in other words, Christ's resurrection, and as he appeared after the resurrection, which of course affects us, means that the human person, that human body, was restored to its original innocence and purity, but it actually went even further, a garment of immortality. In other words, as we will be in heaven with our bodies and souls reunited, transfigured gloriously in a way, in a kind of a form, a way that Christ had when he rose from the dead and appeared to the apostles. He was a combination of the world beyond and this world. His body was recognizable at the same time, not recognizable. He had the wounds in his hand that Thomas put his fingers into, remember that. But at the same time, it was a spiritualized body. Well, this is the great destiny that is in store for us, and it was given witness to by Christ in his resurrected body, which was, which was different, special, recognizable, yet beyond recognition. So we have three kinds of garments now that we're referring to in the liturgical text, and all this comes from the fathers of the church. The first garment was that garment of a pure, more spiritualized person or body of Adam and Eve before sin. Then comes the garment of iniquity. In other words, a more coarse appearance. And in addition to that, clothes that they had to wear. Remember the fig leaves? The fig leaf was was also part of the more physical part of this other garment that came in after iniquity, after sin. But now we have the garment of immortality. And that's what we're referring to when we baptize someone. We say, you who have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Again, it's a reference to a garment. So we see in these references in the liturgical text a lot of richness that has to do with the meaning of our bodies. It's original innocence, how it became more coarse, you know, the garment of skin and the fig leaves, and then how it will be in the end and forever, modeled again, for us by Jesus Christ in his resurrected body. So this term of garment is woven throughout the liturgical text of both the week of the bridegroom and also now bright week 
and later on now this day of the myrrh-bearing women, in which we also feature Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. Now we're going to talk a little bit more about them as men and women and why they're featured today and how that ties in with St. John Paul II's The Allergy of the Body. I'm Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. Light of the East mission is Christianity's reunion and to tell the story of the Eastern Lung of the Catholic Church. We need your support. In order to keep Light of the East on the air, you can make a donation now by going to byzantinecatholic.com. That's byzantinecatholic.com. Click on the radio button and then donate securely using any major credit card. With your help, we can keep Light of the East's illumination bright. Glory to Jesus Christ. Hello, I am Father Thomas J. Loy, and I would like you to join me on the Oriental Illumined Pilgrimage to Rome and Istanbul to celebrate the canonization of Popes John Paul II and John XXIII. In addition to celebrating the sainthood of two world-renowned popes, this trip will be a powerfully moving and truly unforgettable experience of the Church breathing with both lungs east and west. We will visit major religious and historical sites of the ancient Roman and Byzantine empires, and you will hear from people who actually knew these two saintly popes. I guarantee you will never see the Church the same way again and you will be making your personal contribution toward the cause in which these two popes were committed unity in the church between east and west join father Loya tuesday through thursday october 21st through october 30th for this spiritual event of a lifetime the pilgrimage to rome and istanbul limited spaces reserve early by going to vikingtvl.com that's vikingtvl.com for all the details october 21st through the 30th you're listening to Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. It's no secret that Father Loya and other speakers from the Tabor Life Institute are available to speak at your parish or group on marriage and family topics seen through the lens of St. John Paul II's Theology of the Body. Other topics include Eastern Christian spirituality and the significance of art in the church. The Tabor Life Institute can arrange for marriage encounters, parish missions, and can help your parish facilitate teen faith formation in either English or Spanish. For Father Loya and other speakers, contact the Tabor Life Institute by writing to taborlife at earthlink.net. That's Tabor spelled T-A-B-O-R life at earthlink.net. Welcome back to Light of the East. Christ is risen, indeed he is risen. I am Father Thomas Loya, your host on this very interesting, very rich day of the myrrh-bearing women in the Byzantine liturgical tradition, which also features Joseph and Nicodemus. We have a presentation of men and women and what that actually means, set in the context of Christ's resurrection as expressed in the liturgical text for today. We're going to look at one of these liturgical texts, one of the other ones. It says here, the women prepared myrrh to anoint you and secretly came to your tomb early in the morning. They feared the boldness of the Jews and they expected the soldiers to be keeping guard. But their weakness triumphed over manly strength, for tenderness finds favor with God. And so they cry out, Arise, O Lord, protect us and save us for the love of your name. Did you catch that? Weakness triumphed over manly strength, for tenderness finds favor with God. Now, who ever accused the church of being down on women? This is an ancient liturgical text of prayer. What does it say? That tenderness finds favor with God. 
Weakness triumphed over manly strength. Now, by weakness, they don't mean that women are weak. They just mean they are, in certain ways, obviously, they're softer. They have gentler compositions and different ways. So that softer, in this case, they use the term weak, triumphed. In other words, the gentleness was and the receptivity to God inherent in womanhood, as John Paul II says in his Theology of the Body, it's the great genius of womanhood, their, their tenderness, their openness, their receptivity to God, their trusting to God, triumphed over manly strength. In other words, it was a stronger thing than what we might associate as strength to be, such as in men. So this verse is actually very, very rich in its meaning. Their weakness triumphed over manly strength, for tenderness finds favor with God. And in fact, God did seem to favor womanhood. And when we say that, we don't mean it in the secular way. There was a special vocation to womanhood, and it shall ever, ever be told and known that it was to woman, to woman, that the first announcement of the resurrection of Christ was made. That message was entrusted to womanhood, because inherent in womanhood, God gave that genius the gift of receptivity. They came to the tomb at night. They could have endangered themselves by doing that. But they came there with strength, with courage, these myrrh-bearing women, as we call them, and they were the first to receive that news. You know, very innocent, very open, very tender. The men were still hiding. The men were skeptical. They were sitting there picking their psychological sores and feeling sorry for themselves because it seemed like they had been defeated. Men don't like that. They don't like to be defeated. They don't like to see and be a part of failure. They thought this was a grand failure. What happened? Jesus failed us on the cross. He was always so strong. He was always in control on top of everything. Now, what's this? The women were different. The women went there open, trusting, and courageous, almost oblivious to what might happen to them. They were so focused on tending to Christ's body. Now, let's look at the men. Joseph of Arimathea, in this liturgical text, it says this, All the faithful, let us praise as is fitting the noble Joseph of Arimathea, who took the body of Christ down from the cross and piously gave him a respectful burial. Okay, now Joseph, yeah, he showed some strength there too, and some courage. He came to Pilate, asked for the body, which means he would have been exposed as a follower, at least some kind of a sympathizer of Christ, at least someone who respected him enough or his body enough to take it down and to give it a proper burial. But in doing so, we see, again, a little theology of manhood here tending to the more external matters, the job that has to be done, what is proper and just and right. And he goes through the channels of authority, respecting authority, you know, the chain of command. Men tend to function in a very hieratic mode. So he goes to the authority, asks for permission, keeps the order of things, maintains the order of things in terms of honoring Christ's body, takes it down from the cross, and very dutifully puts it in burial in a tomb. And, by the way, Liturgical texts from the fathers of the church point out that it is a virginal tomb. That's right. It is a virginal tomb. As he was born in a virginal womb, he was laid in a virginal cave. In other words, a tomb that no one had been buried in yet. So the men acting as men, John Paul II would teach in his theology of the body that external dimension, that sense of authority and strength. Womanhood, that sense of trusting, of receptivity, of tenderness, of looking after the person in need. Those two things come through, not only in the story, but also in the liturgical texts, in very theological and poetic ways. And the reason why this is significant, especially now with the timing of all this, is because 
Pope John Paul II is now St. John Paul II. And his vision of the human person is very, very liturgical. That's why I like it so much, the theology of the body. I see the wedding of the two, John Paul II's thought and his teaching on the human person with the liturgical text of the Eastern churches, which altogether then is a great meditation and unfolding of the narrative events of Christ's death on the cross, his being taken down from the cross and buried in a tomb, and of course, his resurrection. All this comes together into one basic message. God had a very, very marvelous, incomprehensibly marvelous destiny for the human person. It was so in the beginning. We lost it through sin. But Christ, God himself, the second person of Trinity, takes on human form while remaining God, comes into our fallen reality, redeems it, and raises it up to something that was even beyond its original innocence. See, that's the key. That's the kicker. That's the great source of joy and marvel of these events of Christ's resurrection and why we look at the men and women in that moment who took his body down from the cross. It had to do with this revelation of the body, the human body that Christ took on, being very sacramental and having a destiny beyond what we know, a destiny where it will rejoin its soul and be transfigured in some marvelous kind of synergy in a way that is glorious, no longer just corrupt, but reunited and glorious, not just resuscitated, but resurrected. See, that's the key. And oftentimes the word incorrupt is repeated in the liturgical prayers during this Paschal season, because that's a very important point. Christ's body died, but he did not undergo corruption. Because once again, he's pointing to the fact that this was never intended for us either. So Christ restores what was at the beginning, but then goes even beyond it. It's almost like he's telling us, you think this is great? Well, I'm going to do one better. I'm going to show you something that even Adam and Eve would not have known until I came into that era that John Paul II would call historical man, in other words, the fallen era, and redeemed it and brought the human person to a whole new, splendid, glorious, indescribably glorious destiny. That's the marvel of this resurrection event. And as we look at the women involved and the men, it's very, very ingenious that the church over centuries has featured the men and women. How providential that centuries later, someone like John Paul II would come along and give us a lot more insight into this, that the body is holy, the body is sacramental, the body has a supernatural destiny to it, an eschatological destiny to it. And so when the women come to anoint the body, and Joseph and Nicodemus come to give it proper, dutiful respect and burial, they are actually foreshadowing and actually participating in the meaning of the body, that destiny of the body that Christ had from the beginning, and that he models at his resurrection, and which St. John Paul II spoke about in his monumental teaching of the human person. So you see how it all comes together? I know there's a lot of layers here. So it's the narrative itself in the scripture of Christ being buried in the tomb, the liturgical text and how they feature men and women and their respective roles consistent with their theology of their male-female body persons, and then St. John Paul II's 
unfolding, his elucidating of what all this means, especially for us. Because now we get the real mystical view of the human person and of the theology of our body. Theology of our body means that our bodies reveal God. That's why they're holy. And all that has to do with them must be holy. That's the basis of the church's teaching on all morality, is the holiness of the body and how it reveals and points to God and how one day that body will be reunited with the soul, transfigured gloriously as Christ witnesses to us in his bodily resurrection. Well, I'm going to let you digest that for a little bit because I know it's multi-layered, very complex. That's, that's the beauty genius of the church. And I want to say hello to a couple people. First of all, Buddy, our good friend Buddy listens to us from Massachusetts. Buddy has called in and contacted me, giving me a lot of great support. And I really appreciate that, Buddy. So Christ has risen, a blessed Paschal season to you, Buddy, from Massachusetts. And also Charles Cook, the man who got it all started for us here at Light of the East. And once again, he's asking you to join him in Saginaw, Michigan, Saturday, May 17th, 12 noon at the Saginaw County Courthouse to protest the HHS mandate. Again, guest speaker is Monica Miller, Ph.D., and that is Saturday, May 17th, 12 noon at the Saginaw County Courthouse. For information, you can call Charles at 989-790-4873, 989-790-4873. I want to thank Charles Cook for being such a great friend of us here at Light of the East from the very beginning, and also for his acting like Joseph and Nicodemus, stepping up for the sake of the body of Christ. And I want to thank you for listening. I'm Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. To hear Light of the East again, visit ByzantineCatholic.com and click on the radio button. Light of the East is produced by ADC Media. Thank you for listening. Next week, we will return to the light of the East. To learn more about Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish, visit our website, byzantinecatholic.com, where you will also find an archive of all of our programs. In order to continue Light of the East with its mission of Christianity's reunion, we need your support with a donation. Any amount will be a blessing. Please make out a check to Light of the East Radio and send it to Light of the East, 14610 Will Cook Road, Homer Glen, Illinois, 60491. That's Light of the East, 14610 Wilcook Road, spelled W-I-L-L-C-O-O-K Road, Homer Glen, Illinois. From the Light of the East, a new dawn of unity is in sight. God bless you, go with God, and may God grant you many happy years. Oh.